Hi, I'm Brandon Paul Eels. This is Reading Out Loud. There's a thinly stretched existence being lived on the 3 a.m. subway trains. You can see it pulling on the lolling heads of the passengers on their way to make their shift in time. They're fretting at night, they're not sleeping well, they've got kids to feed and bills to pay, but in the in-between of home and work, in those those sweet, sweet minutes of sleepy respite where all they have to do is sit and listen to the rhythmic clatter of the train cars until their stop comes, in that space, they're able to drowse and let their minds wander over the dreams of their own that they long since gave up. And not with bitterness or anger, but just, just remembering that feeling of of having dreams and they want their kids to know that feeling basically all i'm saying is you know call your parents this time on reading out loud security by erica price kennard's wife thinks it's strange that the people who keep other people's things safe aren't valued as much as the things They're keeping safe. Yeah, she thinks it's perverse that people can spend more than the average person's annual income on a car (laughs) and then hire someone to protect that car who isn't valued or well compensated. Uh, She doesn't say this to Kennard, though. She says it about him, around him, but it's always directed at neighbors or friends. Yeah, they expect him to risk his life for what, a car? A few other people's cars? The value system behind it is so absurd. Her friend Miranda holds the baby and provides a chagrined expression. Yeah, well, you know. She offers blithely. It's fucked. Most of Tina's friends are childless and don't think about swearing in front of children. Sometimes Ken or Tina will shift uncomfortably or pull away from it, but it doesn't even register, especially with Miranda. (laughs) It's a baby. It knows nothing. It doesn't evaluate. It isn't offended. It doesn't care. Tina pours her third cup of tea and sits on the arm of Kennard's chair. It's a hand-me-down from Kennard's grandfather's living room. She leans into him and spicy steam from the tea wafts into Kennard's nostrils. She quit coffee and began quaffing big cups of chai, which she brews continuously. Now the white teacups are brown-ringed and stained with chai. The travel mugs are gunky. Their sides murky with the remnants of chai. The sink is covered in chai. Do you, like, fantasize about stealing shit from people's cars? Miranda asks him, her eyes going wide with excitement at her own idea. Like, do you think about taking change out of their cup holders and, and like, their glove boxes and shit? The baby, still cradled in Miranda's arms, strikes her in the face with a lazy, limp hand. <laughs> His tiny nails need cutting, and the strike leaves a pink, irritated scratch along the side of Miranda's face. Tina rises to claim the child, and Kennard grins at the floor. I don't imagine stuff like that, he says, after things have quieted down. I don't know why. Their visitor nods. I guess you just get used to it, being around all that wealth. She steals a glance at Tina and adds, Conspicuous consumption. Kennard doesn't explain that in the parking garage where he works... Nobody keeps changing their cars. Yeah, these are not people who keep track of nickels or even quarters. Right, they don't don't have to keep track of small flecks of money. You know, the cars are money. The the people are money. There's there's money in their fabrics and their bowels and the the bits of food clinging to their teeth. There's money in their their posture and their, their clean, unblemished brows and their perfectly shaped fingernails. At work, Kennard can smell money in the oddly fresh, pleasant air of what should be a dank and stale garage. 
And there's money in, in how the owners of the cars just look right past him when they speak to him. There's money hanging over the expectation that his uniforms be unmolested, crisp. Theirs is the kind of wealth that can't be stolen. Yeah, at least not by an individual man like him. Tina stands and bounces their baby. Kennard likes how maternity looks on her. She jiggles her whole body, making her clothes swing around. He follows her legs to her hips, to her waist, to her arms, cradling baby Nathan, then up to her face. And she is smirking down at him. He's too loyal, she says to Miranda. He doesn't even think he has a right to their money. Tina had earned a philosophy degree. Mm -hmm. Her ideals had been somewhere between absurdism and Marxism, from what Kennard could tell. When Kennard met her, she was newly graduated, and he was working on a degree in... Food, food science. Right, yes. They shared sandwiches on the steps of the museum where Kennard worked, and he told her that all carbohydrates, whether refined or complex, were treated the same way by the body. Right after being ingested. Yeah, they were converted to essentially sugar. Glucose, to be more specific. Yeah, and used for energy. He told her that the brain could run on sugar and sugar alone, mm-hmm. so the body learned to make sugar from whatever it took in. Wheat, apples, cotton candy. Potatoes. Yeah, it didn't matter. All became fuel in the end. What mattered then was the simple math of what you needed and what you got. Right, and as he said all this, Tina's face was very still, just impassive. She took a long, slow bite of rye and mozzarella. I think that depends on what your definition of matters is, she told him. It was a security guard back then at the museum where he'd taken Tina. And he was a security guard now. There seemed to be no chance of that changing, at least not until Nathan went away to college. You could work in campus security, Tina hypothesized one night. Children of employees save, what, 50% on tuition? It was no surprise to him that a philosopher would struggle to make money. Throughout history, philosophers had been shiftless in every sense of the word. Right, to love a philosopher was to look after them. They were always tended to by others. In some religious traditions, the great thinkers were forbidden from even attempting labor. Yeah the prosaic and practical world would taint them, or else dull the blades of their minds, it was thought. (laughs) And in all of human history, it seemed that sharpened minds were needed for one purpose or another. Yeah, now all of that Kennard could respect. What he could never have predicted, however, was that his abstract philosophical wife would grow to become the policer of practicalities. You could get a job as a campus security officer, she said again another night, at a state school, someplace close. Then Nathan could live at home. We'd save tens of thousands. It was Kennard that wanted the kid, not her. She had trouble with the tangibility of a child. How pregnancy could shift her body and how a a baby could extract from her some vital milky essence. The problem of an infant's consciousness. The paradox of its selfhood. Now, Kennard said that they had to decide before they got married. He he pleaded for her to make a choice, just determine what she valued. To marry before solving the debate of parenting would be potentially tragic. Debates are not solved. Tina corrected him. They are settled. Yeah, like old houses creaking into their foundations or falling leaves forming a pile, debates could not be fixed or solved. They just fell scattered into place. Kennard had wanted a wedding. They eloped. 
Kennard had wanted a child. They adopted one. They agreed to adopt. Kennard did not mind that. Tina wanted some physical distance from the reproductive process. But then she held baby Nathan in her arms and proclaimed that the baby must be breastfed. That is actually better for him nutritionally, right? The science is sound on that, she said, despite understanding the philosophy of science well enough not to ask. Kennard smelled the baby's head. Absolutely. There are human nutrition classes at the community college. He could take one or two during the day. And then drag himself self-deprived into work at night. She wouldn't mind. She would support him. He works nights anyway. His days are free. All he'd lose is a few hours of sleep a few feet away from a noisy baby. But he doesn't want community college and tired night shifts. He wants the state school north of the city, the, the respectable one with the... Reflecting ponds and drowsy-seeming willow trees. He wants brick buildings and sloping paths and and young adults playing in a quad outside his classroom window. He wants overpriced bookstores and professors with laboratories and, and knowledge that they've authored. It is not too late for him yet. He could, he could wear a sweatshirt and jeans that fit fashionably and be mistaken for a traditional student. An adult child. He has round, corn-fed cheeks and light olive skin that does not crack, and he is rarely in the sun since he works nights. He could slip into the school like a fish dropped in a stream. He could get those last 12 credits, then complete a thesis, and he could graduate and work as a nutritionist. In an eating disorder clinic. Yeah, or for an athlete, or for... Craft. He is embarrassed that his dreams are still vague. Still, they're his. It doesn't. It doesn't matter so much where he ends up, as long as he gets out of the crisp uniform and the parking garage. Tina comes home from the cafe where she works part-time. They still give her bags of nearly expired beans, though she no longer drinks coffee. And sometimes she squirrels away stale muffins in her bag. (laughs) She stands in the middle of the living room and looks down at baby Nathan, who is on his stomach reaching for Kennard's name tag. She throws a carrot raisin muffin at Kennard. It's as solid and as stiff as a glass paperweight. Kennard sets his laptop on the coffee table and works at the muffin's stiff shrink wrap. Walking over to their child, Tina spies the website Kenner's been looking at. It's a glossy, well-designed page listing the many advantages of attending the state school north of the city. At the top of the page, a youthful, diverse, and wholesome gaggle of students are gathered on the steps of a great stone building. Kenner's cursor hovers over a link to transfer student applications. Will they accept your transfer credit, she asks him? All of it? These questions go on all evening. Even that weird English class? Is it too late to do a FAFSA this year? Can you get discounted parking? Have they posted the schedule for the spring semester yet? What if the classes are at a bad time? What if the classes you need are at nighttime? Now, they aren't always launched at him rapid fire. Sometimes they bubble up from deep inside her abstract philosophical brain. It may take a year or two of part-time enrollment. She declares in bed. But I'm sure you can do it. He has slid far down the mattress. Somehow his shoulders are parallel to her belly button, and his feet and shins are dangling well off the edge of the bed. He didn't have answers to most of her questions. Hadn't even thought about most of them yet. Just thinking of the practicalities and of solving them has fatigued him. 
suddenly he isn't sure it's worth all that extra work. By the time she looks up the cost of tuition, he is so demoralized by decision fatigue that he doesn't have to be told that it just isn't feasible and that she's sorry, but it'll have to wait. He will have to wait. A woman in an oxblood leather jacket and frayed white leggings is pointing to a dent in the bumper of her car. She's mussing with her hair with an anxious hand and demanding to see the garage's security camera footage to find out how this happened and who is responsible. Kennard leads her into the little glass room with the desk and the computer and rewinds the recording as far back as it'll go so he can play it for her, sped up, colorless, and silent. He hopes they find a disgruntled trespasser destroying the bumper with an iron-toed boot. He hopes that the damage was incurred during one of his shifts, somehow without his knowledge, so that he can be screamed at and scream back. He wants to be wronged and and self-righteous to the point of breaking. He wants to be fired and collect an unemployment check. Instead, they stand awkwardly close in the cramped space and they watch the tape with dull boredom, shifting their weight and listening to the hum of the fan, and then 20 minutes pass, and then 30... And they find nothing. Yeah. A rich guy comes into the garage. He makes a beeline to the security office. He sees Kennard and the woman, and he begins to holler, saying she didn't have permission, and that he knows that she was tipsy, and that somebody saw her pull the vehicle straight into a fire hydrant. Sheepish, the woman claims the damage is a mystery, one that she and the security guard are working to solve. Saying this, she squints in the direction of Kennard's name tag, but she doesn't take the time to read it, or her eyes are still too bleary from the drinking she apparently did the previous night. So she calls him the security guard. And then this guy, while the man, apparently her father, harangues her. And at some point, she stomps off, her expensive heels making sharp noises on the concrete. And Kennard realizes she is not a woman so much as a child made up and dressed up by wealth, but still irresponsible. Younger than the college students Kennard wishes he could join. Now the rich man points at Kennard and says, please remember her face. Remember that she is not allowed to drive that car or any car except for the old Hummer, which at least is safe and will protect her from herself. And then he grasps Kennard gently on the shoulder and pulls up the edges of his mouth, feeble smile and Kennard realizes that the man thinks that he is being kind and pleasant. That that he is so isolated by his wealth that he does not know how to treat someone like a peer. He thinks he's being jovial anytime he isn't grabbing a service worker by the throat. Tina buys Kennard a copy of Food Rules by Michael Pollock. A customer at the cafe has recommended it many times religiously. Kennard reads it at work late in the night when the garage is still. While he reads, he must stand ramrod straight and orient himself below one of the air vents, looking out on the tarp-covered convertibles which have been put away for the winter. The cold from the air vents and the growing discomfort in his legs from standing helps to keep him alert. In about an hour, he'll slide a chalky no-dose down his throat, give him an extra burst. In the book, Pollen declares that man should never eat or buy food that his great-grandmother would not recognize. Kennard pictures the food of his forebears, lard and flour and feet and chewing tobacco. 
These are the things that his toothless great Mimi subsisted on. <laughs> she didn't know what a falafel was. She would have wretched the smell of chai in Tina's cup. Mm. On his ride home from work, it's 6 a.m., and the sky is a strange glowing cerulean. Kennard chews on half a Tylenol PM and hurls the book over his shoulder. It hits the rear windshield of his car with a mighty smacking sound, much like a thunderclap. Tina trains to become a manager. And this would require that she work 30 to 39 hours per week, Mm -hmm. just shy of earning benefits. Yeah. Miranda comes to their house more often to watch baby Nathan and fold laundry. While texting her latest boyfriend. (laughs) They pay her in meals and in company. Yeah, and $11 an hour. You work too hard. She chirps when Kennard comes home from work. Night has shifted into morning. Tina has left and Miranda is swaying the baby on her hip. Kennard picks up an unfamiliar jar of baby food. What is this? Miranda is serene. Organic, with lots of cinnamon to prevent diabetes and plenty of yummy omega-3s. Kennard hears Nathan's bowels go. He takes the baby into the bedroom, strips off the diaper, wipes the baby clean from head to toe. When Nathan whimpers like he's about to cry, Kennard places a finger to the baby's lips and speaks so quietly that he can't even hear himself. Kennard blinks, and the car is gone. Kennard blinks, and the car is back. He closes his eyes, counts to a thousand, and the car is replaced with the latest model and a specialty color. Champagne. Seafoam. Charcoal. Ember glow. Ultra black. He turns around and everything is the same. Except the owner of the yellow Hummer has a new haircut. Her hair is champagne colored too. Things change like that. Which is to say not much at all. Kennard imagines taking a random night at his job and overlaying it with all the nights in his recent past. He could layer him like that, going back years, and find that little is different. Still, he'd be standing there, ramrod and tired. All the wealthy people would stride purposefully or sloppily across the concrete. The cars would change a bit in shape and color, but you know, remain the same. People would update their wardrobes and their quaffs and their bags, but that'd be it. The structure and the cool, artificially freshened air and Kennard's uniform would all stay the same. A janitor walks across the lot with his bicycle. Kennard must yell and run after him, tell him that he does not belong there, and then see to it that he's fired. It seems redundant to yell at the poor guy and then also see him fired, but that's the policy, and that's what Kennard must do. This happens every month or so, some new hapless custodial worker. It's how the garage justifies keeping Kennard around. Aside from keeping up appearances and watching security tapes, it's the one clear job he does. For years, Kennard has withheld this aspect of his work from Tina to spare her a burst of useless outrage. At last, over a late-night meal of cauliflower curry, he unloads his guilt to her. He's not sure why. 
He wants her to erupt with anger for him and maybe come to hate the job as much as he does. Tina shakes her head. When they train the janitors, don't they tell them not to go through the garage? Kennard nods. Of course. She looks at her plate and shrugs, a little sad. I'm just glad those bastards don't treat you as bad as they treat the janitors. After she says this, she rolls her eyes, a little bashful. Maybe for swearing, maybe for saying something so inconsiderate. It goes without saying that she disapproves of how the custodial workers are treated. Of course it's an injustice. Of course it's classist and racist and everything else. Yeah, but she doesn't voice any of this to him. It seems that she has lost the energy. He takes an online class in organic chemistry. On his phone, he steals time away from work, doing readings, taking quizzes. He earns an A-. minus. He spills a minuscule dribble of coffee on the rug in front of the elevator bank at work. His boss fumes and makes him clean it. Knees pressed to the cold floor, back bent, chemical fumes wafting up, his right hand scrubbing in a semicircular motion that makes his tendons hurt. Nathan was the wrong name for their child. Yeah, no longer a baby, the child goes by Carrie and Mm -hmm. fears her oncoming puberty like a guillotine blade. Kennard and Tina are quick to get over their confusion and throw themselves into understanding and being supportive. Yeah, they see their babies. their daughters. Frustration, and they see her, and they know that they must act. If hormones start soon, they can spare the child years of grief. She can blossom into the person, the girl that she is, and move through society easily. They want this for her. This they promise. Kennard holds Carrie against his chest. He meets Tina's gaze from across the room. There are practicalities swirling behind her eyes. Numbers and rational thoughts. We need better health insurance. Kennard sits at the breakfast table with his daughter. He's exhausted from work, but hope causes him to brighten. We are going to find a new doctor for you, he tells her, patting her on the back. And we're going to help you find other kids, little girls just like you. Tina eats fiber cereal and cries like Kennard has never seen before. He works inside a hospital now, his nostrils burning from the stink of medicine and recycled air. It's chilly all the time and bright. Everywhere he can hear beeping machines and whispering voices and shoes squeaking across the floor. He's never alone. Yeah, there's always a weak or delirious patient sobbing, huddled throngs of family members or doctors rushing with purpose in their eyes. And nurses and scrubs inquiring about his day. (laughs) He doesn't get to read much anymore. He has a beat to walk. He must keep moving. Despite all the people who wish to chat with him. He's always handing out tissues or giving directions to visitors. He finds he has an actual purpose. In the ER, he's got to break up fights and keep drunks from crashing face first to the floor. When visiting hours are over, he's got to escort tear-streaked family members from the oncology ward. In obstetrics, he's often tasked with carrying heavy vases filled with flowers or bottles of celebratory champagne. Some of the bottles have It's a Girl or It's a Boy printed on the side, but he tries to ignore these messages. Tries not to be a pedant. When he takes his break in the cafeteria, the pediatric nurses chat with him. Ask him about his daughter. How's she doing? Was she scared to get her ears pierced? Does he have a picture of her? What's she been into lately? He opens his phone and closes the online learning application. Shows him Carrie, beaming in her karate uniform. It's stained with apple juice and rumpled, but she is delighted to be wearing it. 
He says she collects rocks and favors brightly colored stirrup pants. He sometimes sits at a table with the sick or just grief-stricken and encourages them to eat. Even if the soft serve or the mystery meat from the hospital cafe looks unappetizing, he chides them to feed themselves. It is fuel, he tells them encouragingly, and your body needs it, especially now. Your body will make something good out of it. No matter how greasy or sickly it looks on your plate. The body's ability to convert matter into energy is one of the great magics that we are capable of. From something still and dull and dead, we can rebuild ourselves, lay down new flesh and muscle and bone. Sometimes he starts to rhapsodize if his dining companion is amenable. He tells them we're all self-sculptors. We're all tiny Tiny gods. gods. Security by Erica Price. Reading with me this time was Lacey Catherine Campbell and Eleni Papa George. Reading Out Loud is produced by Ryan P. Duke, Scott Miner, and myself. Our sound designer is Scott Miner at Lucky Dog Audio Post. Our editors are Gwen Fulcher and James Tania. Our editorial consultant is Simon A. Smith. Gwen Fulcher handles our social media, and our reader in residence is Eleni Papa George. This episode was made possible by generous pledges from Randall Anderson, Pat Duke, and Will Mitchkey. If you enjoy the show, please visit patreon.com slash readingoutloud and pledge a few bucks to help us keep going. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash readingoutloud. Also, visit our website, readingoutloud.org, for more information about our authors and fun little extras. While you're there, check out our submission guidelines and submit one of your own stories. We may just add it to our lineup for season four. While you're on the interwebs, make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Team ROL. Next week, part four of our ongoing story, Unless It's About Me by Ryan P. Duke. Things are starting to get serious, so make sure you check it out. Until then, for all of us at Reading Out Loud, I'm Brandon Paul Eels. Thanks for listening.